So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang app. Downloaded it, listened to it, real cool, you know. And the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the cold, but can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. What a serendipitous thing it was that it was us and not any of the other apes that came to be the dominant species, you know, and it could so easily have been one of the others. A planet where apes evolved from men? There's got to be an answer. Don't look for it, Taylor. You may not like what you find. So really, we've constructed our own environment in a way that no other primate can, you know. We've made an environment which is optimal for us, so we haven't had the need to adapt to an environment that's changing that we're not in control of. Civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. No longer, madam, he is now in the custody of the Ministry of Science. I think the question about thought and language is an absolutely fundamental question to understanding how our cognition works. On this end cabinet, we actually have samples of Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA in those two test tubes, which is astonishing. So, uh, forgive the science fiction, but you know, could you recreate the Neanderthal from that? There are women who indeed have already volunteered to carry Neanderthal babies. Yes, indeed, no. but that doesn't mean we should do it. <laughs> Somebody will. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Amazing. <laughs> uh, welcome to Science Session. This is the show uh, that looks at the science in fiction, tries to work out how much of it is in fact. Oh dear, I don't want to say in fact science facts, do I? No. I've just done no. It. Oh dear. What should I have said, Michael? Uh, how much of it is fact? Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards. I'm joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. You've really, you've really nailed that now. <laughs> like you know, you know what you're doing that every bit. time. Uh huh. Sometimes you uh, you change inflection. Yeah, but that's, that's just exciting. when I'm feeling a bit rakish. Yeah, which you're not feeling today. No, you? no. So this is a show where we look at the science in fiction and try and work out how much of it is fact. This time we're going to be looking at the Planet of the Apes, the original film. From 1968. Eight, yeah. 1968. Uh, I haven't seen this film, I think, since I was about 12, which right. is a long, long time ago. I can remember it, but I think you've seen it more recently. So I actually time... watched it last weekend. Oh, there you go. So give us a, give us a rundown of the so, plot there, Michael. So what essentially happens is these this group of, I think it's three men and one woman, travel in a spacecraft, and they're supposed to be going to some distant galaxy, but they end up not on some distant galaxy, but actually, you know, spoiler alert, on future Earth. I was going to say, I mean, that is a big spoiler, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> well, to be honest, I'm not going to recommend anybody goes and watches this film. I think I'd actually rather watch The Day After Tomorrow. Really? I know that's harsh, 
But it, that the, can't. I think you're exaggerating is, for effect. The acting is so terrible. The plot is really wooden. And I mean, it, it's sort of like you took a primary school and you gave them a bit of extra budget for the school play for this year. Mm. And that's primary kind of, school. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thank you. Uh, that's what we've got effectively. And then all of a sudden, this troop of monkeys, apes. Sorry, let's be scientifically correct yeah. here. Um, they they arrive on horseback and start shooting and killing them. gorillas, aren't they? Uh, that first lot, aren't they? I can't even remember. Yes, sir. So uh, they get captured, and and the one who gets um, our, all our attention is Charlton Heston. Yeah, who plays a bloke called Taylor, who is subjected to tests by the ape scientist, and he has to escape and get away and all this kind of stuff. There's a quite a clever plot device whereby he can't speak for quite a while because he's been shot in the throat. The thing is that eventually he can speak, but all of the other the sort of you know primal humans that are there, uh, they can't speak at all. They're mute through the whole thing. They literally mm. don't make a sound, which is weird because there's nothing in the animal kingdom that that is that you know well developed that wouldn't make any sound at all. That's your major beef with the plot, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Too quiet. But uh, ultimately, this film is about evolution. Yes. I guess an exploration of the of the possibilities of evolution. Could there have been different outcomes to the one that we find ourselves in, in now? So I guess, first of all, we should just talk a bit about evolution. So, I mean, the biggest mistake everyone makes is thinking that evolution has some kind of purpose, that it's heading towards something, whereas it's entirely random. So you get random changes... Yeah. In the animal's DNA, effectively mutations happen, which change some of their ability to get on with the environment that they're in. It is curiously counterintuitive because when people, you're right, when people think about evolution, they imagine that somehow an animal is looking at its niche and going, ah, it'd be much better if I was like this. Yeah. And then it's developing that characteristic. Yeah. And in fact, that obviously isn't happening. No. There's, there's no sort of end game to evolution. It, it, it's random. Can I, can I do my thing about the moth that I think is the do, best? Uh, do, please. So, uh, around the uh, Industrial Revolution, there's an example of evolution that I think kind of clarifies the, the mechanism quite well. So you had a thing called the peppered moth, and it was living on, I guess, silver birch trees or something like that, yeah. or trees with a, with a pale uh, white trunk. And the moth was uh, a very similar colour to the bark of the tree. Therefore, when it was sitting on the tree, it was basically invisible to birds and other predators. However, with the uh, onset of the Industrial Revolution, a lot of soot and carbon in the air coated the, the, the bark of the trees, and suddenly the bark of the trees is now dark, sort of black. And so these moths are standing out. Uh, <laughs> like, nightmare. Actually, They're they are having an absolute mare, yeah. uh, because the birds are just picking them off <laughs> willy-nilly. But a random mutation has occurred where... A moth has come out, like the the black sheep, if you like, of the of the moth family, and it hasn't got eaten. And suddenly, all of the uh, the, the white moths uh, die out, and this and these few black moths will will breed. And this happened over a matter of years, didn't it? Yeah, Incredibly yeah, quickly. It very quick. Um, whole population then became black, and that is the mechanism of all evolution. Yeah, and uh, that's right from the bottom up. This is Darwin's great understanding was that actually this drives the whole thing. Obviously, there are. Lots of people who don't subscribe to the idea of evolution, they have a creationist viewpoint, which we should, I guess we should touch upon. So they, It'd be a shame not to, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. They think, what do they think? They just think 
I mean, literally, just sort of God created everything, and uh... so and they think that that or there's a significant proportion of people, especially in America, who think that humans arrived on the Earth in their current form, mm. against um, all archaeological evidence. Yeah. So I, I guess what's fascinating though is that in the face of all of this evidence to the contrary of creationism, that people still choose to believe in it. Why is that? Well, partly it's a cultural thing. So if you grow up in a culture where this is, you know, the accepted wisdom, and and let's face it, through human, human evolution, actually belonging to your culture and making sure you don't stand apart from the tribe or the group is pretty important. So there's areas of our brain that are kind of hardwired to, to believe in things that are supernatural, uh, that helped us survive in the savannah. You know, if, if there was a bush that was shaking, you kind of always assumed there was a cause for that shaking rather than maybe just the wind or something. Because if there was a tiger about to jump out, you, you better be one of the people that was cautious. Mm. So we evolved to be cautious. We evolved to attribute sort of cause to every effect. So, so you know, it makes actually, it makes evolutionary sense to believe that this world didn't just sort of, you know, exist. You attribute it to something. So you say, okay, God made this like it is, and therefore we better be very careful because there's a God and then we better do the right thing and not question things like that. So our brains are, are very sort of set up to believe in things that maybe, you know, we find some evidence against, but we can explain it away. It's sort of obvious why that would have been useful in our early history, but less so now. But we've still effectively got the same wiring in our brains. So hmm. if, if you're sort of told, you know, when you're very young that this is how the world is and everyone in your social group sort of pretty much does the same thing, all the people that you trust say the same thing, then, you know, what you find is you come across somebody in your out group who, who says something different and you just don't believe them and, or you don't take any notice of them. Okay, so the first of our three questions for this episode has to be, how did we, homo sapiens, end up on top? Uh, and we asked that question to a panel of experts, including Professor Steve Jones from UCL, Dr Susanna Schultz from the University of Manchester, but first, Professor Robin Dunbar of Oxford University. You have to see this against the fact that, sort of from about 10 million years ago, the big forest blocks were beginning to contract very badly and this was putting enormous pressure on the ape species because they really can't cope outside forest. So, you know, the number of species of apes that disappeared over the next five million years is, is massive. We kind of, or at least our ancestors, solved that problem a little bit by venturing out beyond the, the forest itself. But the way they did that really was bipedalism, being able to stand up right and walk. That step into bipedalism ultimately made a much, much more mobile, nomadic lifestyle possible. My name is Steve Jones and I'm Professor of Genetics at University College London. I think there were some moments that were very important. The use of fire, which is much older than most people think. It's long before modern humans, maybe a million years ago. That was very important because it allowed you to cook. We are the only animal ever to have existed in evolutionary history that cannot stay alive on raw food alone. And that's because we've lost so many of our internal digestive enzymes together with our chewing muscles. And we need an external stomach to stay alive. A deep fat fryer or 
microwave. But we've gained one thing, which has made all that irrelevant. We've gained a brain. The evolution of the human brain is a fascinating problem, and it's, it's a problem because essentially what we have now is a modern human brain and our closest relatives, which are the great apes. And although there are many similarities in how our brains are structured, there's also a lot of differences, and we don't have a huge amount of information to fill in the gap about how we became who we are in terms of our brain structure and anatomy. What we can say is there's a couple periods where our brains changed profoundly. And one of those periods is around 1.8 million years ago when the first human-like creature arose, which is the, in our same genus, Homo. One of the biggest problems with trying to understand what caused the jump is that behaviors don't fossilize. So we can't find a bone that says this is how humans behaved 1.8 million years ago. But it probably has a lot to do with the environment that we were living in. Because brains are very costly, there has to be some reason for being willing to pay the cost of having a big brain. The argument was, is they live in a different kind of social system to all these other birds and, and mammals and so on. It's a much more complex system because it's based on these bonded relationships. Primate groups are very, very stable. It's difficult to join another group. They're lifelong relationships. And so the complexity then that that creates particularly in terms of bonding those large groups, requires a big computer. So it is all just pointing back to our, our brain then, isn't it? It seems to be the, the big, big difference. So there's a sort of physical move where we've got bipedalism and you know we're not really sure how and why that happened. It may have been to do with the fact that there weren't so many trees and you've got to have sort of coordination for that, which probably involves some sort of developments in the brain as well sort of obvious point but as you go up on, on two legs you've got your hands free as well yeah you've got your hands free so you can develop tools for instance so so there are you know these kinds of things that happened uh, it's hard to know whether the brain sort of changed first or the brain changed as a consequence but we do know that for instance cooking made a huge difference because all of a sudden you've got access to far far more energy from your food you know you're not relying on just your body's sort of enzymes to digest it but actually you know you do this partial digestion effectively so our brains are two percent of our body mass but they actually use one fifth of the energy and cooking enabled us to feed that so we you know we were able to have bigger brains that's what professor robin was talking about when he was saying about the the brain coming at a high cost yeah, but it uses an awful lot of energy, so it needs to be offering quite a lot of value in yeah. return. But it, but it clearly is offering a lot of value. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you look at the difference between us and what we achieve, and, and what the higher primates achieve, you know, the brain is seems to be what makes that difference. And 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 the expansion of the brain, Professor Robin was suggesting, it is due to our social groups. So that that was what drove our brains getting bigger, and 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 also allowed them to. It's a really difficult sort of chicken and egg thing, isn't it? Because mm. we don't know for sure which sort of happened first, whether our brains got bigger and better. But certainly you need a big brain to be able to cope with living in social groups. And you need social groups probably to survive you know, on the African savannah. Once you're out of the trees, once you're out of the cover, you, know, you, you have to have this kind of social cohesion. So you get this amazing kind of group effect, which is you know, so much more than, than any individual can achieve on their own. And that takes quite a lot of sort of processing, 
you know, to be able to handle, you know, understand where all these relationships are, think about what somebody else might be thinking, you know, that theory of mind thing that you need to be able to empathize, for instance, with what somebody else might be thinking in a group so you don't piss them off, so you don't kind of, you know, put yourself out of the group or put them out of the group. Because being out of the group at that stage is sort of death, basically. It occurs to me that it's not necessarily true that you have to have a big brain to have a big to exist in a big group but i guess the key word is social so i'm thinking about hive animals like hive animals i don't think are um i don't think bees and ants are kind of thinking about what the other members of the hive yeah no that's true emotional state is so you can't and they and they obviously work very well together but they don't need to have big brains but there's a sort of social element it's program behavior there's a very strong genetic element so you're you're effectively bounded by your genes into what tasks you'll do what group you'll fit into so it's a very different kind of thing you know the the humans have no sort of genetic thing that tells them what what particular job they need to do within the group and and there is no way then as you're saying of knowing really whether we got big brains first or we started hanging around these big social groups? It's very difficult. We know that about 7 million years ago, the brain suddenly grew about three times its size. It just had this big boost. And people isolated a gene last year, actually, that that seemed to produce or, or promote brain growth massively. So hominid species, human species, have this genetic mutation, which gives them a bigger brain. So it may be that that was the trigger. And it also turns out, of course, that these bigger groups... Uh, gifted us with what is arguably our most valuable cognitive asset. Professor Robin Dunbar again. As primates move out into more predator-risky habitats, their response is to increase group size. So they have to have a bigger brain to manage the extra relationships, but they also have to have some mechanism that allows them to bond each other. And that mechanism really comes through social grooming in primates. The problem is that's very time-expensive. There's a limit on the size of group you can bond. And when we seriously started to move out into a more nomadic phase of life with with early homo about two million years ago, what you seem to see, at least what we think you see, is a series of phases where additional behaviours are brought into play which kick in the same pharmacological mechanism that underpins grooming. That's the endorphin system in the brain. Endorphins are part of the pain control system. And they're they're opiates. They create this light-headed sense of, you know, the world is wonderful and whoever I'm doing it with is wonderful too. The first phase of that almost certainly was laughter. Later, singing and, and dancing come into play and you can see a nice prelude then eventually to the evolution of language. If we want to look at the neuroanatomical characteristics associated with speech, what we know in, in modern humans is that speech is mostly processed in the temporal lobe. So those are the areas on the sides of our brain, kind of right over and inside of where our ears are. And there are some very important structures there that are that are important for, for both decoding language and producing language. And one of the things that's really interesting is if you look at the difference between the modern human brain and a chimpanzee brain, is it's these areas of the brains that have really disproportionately increased eyes is remarkable he keeps trying to form words you know what they say human see human do there's been many attempts to invent some kind of chimpanzee speech based on sign language because they can wave their hands around or moving shapes that are supposed to mean words to get food or say dirty potty 
It's the only sentence they've ever managed to get. Whereas we have this unbelievable ability to transmit information through speech. And speech, we don't know when it began, but it's probably uniquely human in its advanced form. And once you've got speech, you don't need evolution, because you can pass information on, not through the sperm and the egg, which is the only way, really, the chimps can do it, but through words. We're doing it now on the radio, in a way that doesn't involve any sexual interactions or physical interactions at all. And that's what makes us human. So what Professor Steve is saying there um, about language is particularly pertinent in this film because the, the roles are switched, effectively. The apes have it and the humans don't. And therefore, in the film, the humans are suffering because they can't express their intelligence, I suppose, without, without language. Yeah, I mean, language is something we really take for granted, but it, it's an incredibly powerful thing. So lots of animals have cultural sort of aspects to their lives. So chimps, you know, depending on where they live in Africa, will eat in different ways and groom each other in different ways. And that's a very sort of culturally specific kind of thing. But it's what you learn from your parents or your surroundings. Whereas, you know, we are able to write things down. And so we, we know how to survive in our environment, you know, from things that people have been doing for generations because people have written them down, people have transmitted them. You know, the coding of, of actual language is so clever that you can transmit a massive amount of information with relatively little effort. Whereas if you're a chimp, all you can do is kind of grunt and, and gesture. And, and so does that mean then that as humans, we're kind of exempt from biological evolution in the way that we once were because we have this kind of cultural evolution and we control our environment so much yeah so as we said you know evolution really happens because of a change in the environment and you happen to be well adapted to that particular change it it works for you or it works against you if it works against you you die out if it works for you you're the survivor and of course we just adapt so well to our environment and we've learned how to do it and we've passed it on you know so we pass on things like how to build a solid foundation for a house you know, that will withstand you know, all kinds of changes in the weather and you won't get cold in the winter and, and therefore you'll survive. And so, so we sort of don't have that sense that, of the survival of the fittest anymore. It's actually the survival of a society that just um, transmits information down the generations. Because instead of adapting to our environment, we adapt our environment. Yeah, yeah. So, and, so, and are very proficient at it. Yeah, and, we're, and, and exactly. So we're really good at it and we also know how to pass on that information. Well, the biological evolution of humans is certainly going on because evolution can't stop. I mean, there are mutations happen all the time. I've frequently commented that uh, natural selection in humans, Darwin's machine for building the eye and so on, that's almost certainly stopped, at least in the developed world, at least for the time being, because basically we all survive and we all have roughly the same number of children. There's no longer cases like some recorded Moroccan princes having 750 sons. That doesn't happen. So those differences have gone away. So natural selection's gone away. That doesn't mean that evolution's gone away, because, of course, the genes are on the move. You walk through the streets of London and you'll see evolution happened. There are all kinds of people from different biological backgrounds, and that's what's happening in human evolution. It's faster than it ever was, not through selection, but by migration. So what he's saying is that actually you get just mixing of genes because of migration. So everyone's moving around. So you get different sort of groups of genes from different races, uh, from different kind of regions of the world. And they're mixing together, giving you kind of new genotypes. So we get all these new variants, but there aren't really any new niches to, for them to go into. You know, it's all very much living in the same kind of cities wherever they are in the world. 
So, so that does kind of put a stop to the whole survival of the fittest thing. Niche exploitation was in the past a part of evolution, that if a new niche opened up, then it was possible for a mutation to successfully exploit that niche. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the more that you reduce the number of sort of new and, and interesting niches, the less evolution you'll find. I yeah, guess. I mean, we've covered the planet, haven't we, effectively, apart from, you know, deserts and the poles. And even, uh, I suppose more to the point, even if we did suddenly think, right, we're going to go and live uh, on the poles, we could do that. We'd but do we wouldn't it need with to technology, evolve. wouldn't yeah, we? Yeah, we'd do it. Yeah. We'd, we'd just ha- take some heaters <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and wrap up warm. Yeah, <laughs> and screw you, Darwin. Yeah, basically fine. <laughs> okay, uh, so question two is the, is the obvious one that you have to ask about Planet of the Apes. Could the apes ever actually take over? And we put that to Professor Robin Dunbar. There is no final goal in evolution. So there's no state of nirvana, a state of perfection, where everything works perfectly. Evolution is incredibly dynamic. Everything is driven ultimately by the state of the environment. If you get a major environmental change, climate warming, climate cooling, whatever... It's invariably associated with massive extinctions and very often a palace revolution in which what were once kind of minor bit-part players suddenly becoming better adapted and starting off a whole new evolutionary trajectory. So the demise of the dinosaurs 60 million years ago, suddenly these tiny little furry things scuttling about on the floor have a new lease of life and away they go. That does, however, take a very long time. No species is so pre-adapted to a, a future environment that it, it, it just walks into the thing and goes, wow, nirvana, and takes over the world. There's a long, slow period of adaptation and genetic change and underpinning adaptation. So the bad news, both for us and most of the other monkeys and apes, now alive, is if there's serious environmental change, we're all doomed. And it is going to be some vole (laughs) that is going to launch a new lineage of mammals, for example. You know, something that can can reproduce very, very quickly. Rabbits. (laughs) Take over the world. I think one of the really interesting things to think about is is animals like dolphins, which seem to have very sophisticated social cognition. So dolphins appear to have names for each other. They have something called signature whistles, where they seem to have a specific name that they call other individuals, and they may even talk about those other individuals when they're not there. So this is amazing cognition. But what dolphins will never have are hands. So you're never going to see a dolphin building a city because they actually can't do it because of their body shape. So I don't think dolphins are going to overtake us, and I don't think chimpanzees or gorillas are either. But evolutionarily, it is possible that chimpanzees and gorillas could move into a lifestyle that's more like ours, but I don't think we would allow that to happen. That is the first time I've ever heard anyone body shame a dolphin. (laughs) And I didn't like it. No, no, I felt I felt like she was hating on the dolphins, yeah. really. What do you mean they're never going to have hands? You don't know that, dolphins Susanna. Dolphins dream. <laughs> <laughs> you think dolphins only dream of having hands? <laughs> I bet they do. <laughs> Recurring nightmare. That's why they keep popping up. You know, it's like you know, where we were at. They're just trying to look at the hands and see, what, see how we did it. Um, so 
if we get wiped out, which is not impossible. No, far from it. By uh, an environmental disaster or we just, you know, detonate some thermonuclear weapons or whatever, then there would be a huge niche to be exploited. Be amazing. Actually. And there is yeah. effectively going to be a race to the top. Yeah. It's going to be a very slow race to the it top. It is though. going to be a very slow race to the top. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I was making a film of it, I'd use a lot of time lapse. <laughs> but it's interesting to think about who would who would then do well. And and, and what um, Professor Robin was saying is it's something that just breeds very quickly. Yeah, although that hasn't got the rabbits to the top of the tree yet, has it? You know, there was... Isn't that because the space is occupied? Well, no, I, I think they're, they're not mixing it up enough. There's not enough mutations or whatever. Rabbits are going to stay rabbits pretty much. I think so. They might. You're they a might, pessimist. <laughs> they might take over in numbers, hmm. but then you know that's not actually sort of how we're really measuring it, is it? We're, we're sort of measuring it in terms of intelligence and yeah, ability what, to manipulate uh, the environment or something. I suppose that's the almost the most interesting thing about this film is is how how do you measure evolutionary success? Yeah, what's that, what's the criteria? Because I mean, there are some criteria you could use where you would say bacteria are the pinnacle of evolution mm. because they've totally taken over. You know, I mean, there, there's so many more millions of them for every one of us, so that makes them very successful. Yeah, they're by, nailing it. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've said that before. I guess also we're looking at the fact that we are at the top of the food chain as well. That feels important somehow. Yeah, because I guess early, very early humans weren't at the top of the food chain, were they? No, they were sort picked of off. slow, yeah. weak. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I imagine that, you know, the development of weapons technology was a, a major primary thing. And maybe that's what our brains did first best, you know, the, the defense mm. and then defense attack. and then attack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Classic. It is classic. The old one, too. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we weren't at any point thinking this is what we need to do. <laughs> Although at some point we were thinking this tool will be useful. Yeah. So somebody sort of sharpened a stone. And you know, probably cut somebody else's finger off with well, it. Probably cut himself. Was <laughs> yeah, like, Ow! Actually, and like, yes, Hang yeah. on a minute. Yeah, <laughs> I'm onto something here. <laughs> There's a, a slight misrepresentation in the in the film. In in that, it kind of takes the view that apes are lower than us in evolutionary terms, and that we are like just a more evolved ape. Whereas in fact, we're sort of we're like cousins, cousins aren't we? Yeah, yeah, and well, so they've just they're on a different evolutionary branch, and we're on our one, um, and we're just sort of you know pottering along are apes still evolving are apes still you know, undergoing biological evolution natural selection survival of the fittest well there's no reason to think that they wouldn't be but of course what's so difficult for us is to imagine the time scales that this happens on mm. you know this is why we got so taken in by the idea of um, lamarckism in sort of the 19th century that idea that if a giraffe stretches its neck enough to reach the highest leaves it's going to have offspring with a with a longer neck and mm. that's how all the species diverge and of course that's just not how it is the reality is that we won't see the sort of species evolving in the same way except with things like bacteria that reproduce so fast this is how they develop resistance to all the antibiotics and you know which is such a major crisis at the moment i, I liked um Susanna's stuff about dolphins and the fact that they talk uh, about each other behind <laughs> behind each other's backs, <laughs> which is really nice. But I think her point about that, that we were kind of uh, being well, flippant, infant, infant, flippant. Oh, we don't, say don't say flippant. Don't say flippant. Oh, say infantile. <laughs> about was that they they have a kind of a glass ceiling, if you like, which is <laughs> that they're not going to be able to use tools. They're not going to be able to build themselves an environment they're not really gonna be able to adapt their own environment and so 
as much as they might be able to have, you know, a bit of sort of gossipy chat, yeah. they're never going to dominate in the way that yeah, in, in yeah. the way that we have. I, I have to correct you that they do use tools. There's a specific group of dolphins that live in Shark Bay in Australia that use sponges on their beaks. This is a cultural thing, actually. So, so they put they they basically spear a sponge yeah. with their beak, yeah, and then they use it to rake up the um, the seabed to get food. And well, if you, I, I apologise to the dolphin community. <laughs> if if you don't do that, then you sort of you, know, you basically erode your beak a little bit. But it's really interesting because it's only passed down uh, mother to daughter. So if your mother was a sponger, then you'll be a sponger. But it, it don't, doesn't pass down the male like line a at all. Channel Five documentary. <laughs> so there is some tool use, but it's incredibly limited. What I'm trying to figure out is: would we have looked at us when we were first just sort of? holding a slightly sharpened stone and go and said, hmm, I don't know where this is going to take them. That's an interesting question. Like, will dolphins just find another way of developing more sophisticated tools over many, many years? Like, with, with their, what you insist on calling beaks, which I don't like because they're not birds. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. I can't envisage any way in which a dolphin is going to kind of, you know, start to build itself a, you know, luxurious little pad in the sea yeah but change like, its environment but the can they really change the, their environment the luxurious pad thing is is a is a bit of a red herring isn't it appropriately in the sea um <laughs> because we weren't building ourselves luxurious pads no no i know we were just sort of building a vague something for shelter. survival but there's no indication of them using tools and their culture to change their chances of survival really hmm. what are they getting eaten by killer whales That's sort of it really maybe yeah. sharks yeah. Mm. So, is there something that they could build that would protect them against that? A shark cage. I mean, if I see a dolphin just <laughs> swimming around in a shark cage, I'll give you the money myself. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on to our, our third and final question. So, doesn't look likely that the apes are going to take over um, or, or, or anything else while we're still around, but could it have ended differently? It's a question I put to Chris Stringer at the Natural History Museum. So, Chris, can you tell me, first of all, when and why did Homo sapiens come out of Africa? Well, both those questions are, are somewhat uncertain. First of all, the why. We really don't know why Homo sapiens emerged. The guess is that it was probably climatic changes in the Middle East. The main event seems to be around 60,000 years ago. But recent evidence has emerged that... There was a smaller migration at about 100,000 years we know about from fossils in Israel. There's been some gene flow by modern humans into a Neanderthal living in Siberia. That Neanderthal fossil in Siberia is thought to be over 60,000 years old, and yet it has some modern human DNA in it. So they would have encountered and mixed with other hominid species, and you know, was there much distinction between them, or, or do you think there was a lot of mixing? Well, obviously that first wave, we don't know how many mixing events there were, but the wave at 60,000 obviously does seem to have encountered, first of all, Neanderthals, and they were probably a number of interbreeding events, not just one. And not only that, when modern humans pass through Southeast Asia, it looks like some of them met some other people we know as the Denisovans, but people in Australia and New Guinea today have many of them, about 4% of Denisovan DNA in their genomes, and it looks like there must have been Denisovan populations in Southeast Asia. When the ancestors of Australian Aborigines and New Guineans went through that area, they met some Denisovans, interbred with them, and picked up their DNA as well. 
So we've got just to the right down here um, a Neanderthal's partial skeleton from Kibara in Israel. So the Neanderthals had the helpful habit of burying their dead. Oh, and that yeah. means we've got well-preserved skeletons of them. And here we have uh, a wonderful reconstruction by the Kennis brothers. And they've based this on a Neanderthal skeleton from Spee in Belgium. Right. It's about 40,000 years old. Happens to be one of the smallest male Neanderthals we know of, actually, by chance. But you can see there that characteristic Neanderthal body shape. Short, wide, muscular upper body. But very human, you know, undoubtedly. You, know, you could have just been talking about me, to be honest. Well, there you go, there you go. <laughs> and um, you can see that, that we obviously don't know how much body hair there would have been and we don't know the hairstyles and so on. Yeah. But from the DNA, we know that some Neanderthals indeed had red hair. Yeah. Probably some of them had blue eyes. Uh, and lighter skin, some of them had darker skin. So they showed variation in those physical features. Right. I even read somewhere that, that they have, um, when you reconstruct the sort of the throat, you get the idea that they might have had quite high-pitched voices. Yes, so the, the vocal tract is slightly uh, less deep than, than in a modern human and might have implied a higher-pitched voice, which doesn't go with the kind of Neanderthal image. But yes, and did they speak? Well, obviously, I think they had language. I think they were talking to each other, right. but I doubt that it was the complexity of language that we have today. Okay, that's really fascinating, okay. Let's talk about the different sort of hominid species with, with Neanderthals and this kind of interbreeding that we're talking about. Does that indicate that actually they were living together kind of quite peaceably or do you think there was a lot of violence between different groups? I think that's a very interesting question. We really don't know how the interbreeding happened. And, of course, it may have been in different situations in different places at different times. So it could have ranged all the way from a rather aggressive situation. So in, in chimpanzee groups, in, in modern hunter-gatherers, sometimes a group will run out of females and they will raid another group and steal some women. At the other extreme, yes, it could have been relatively peaceful encounters, exchanging partners, trading and so on. That's a possibility. And also there are things we don't tend to think of, but also possible that perhaps modern humans stumbled on some orphaned Neanderthal babies or abandoned Neanderthal babies, and they adopted them into their group and brought them up within their group, which then would have led on eventually right. to interbreeding. So how successful were the Neanderthals before modern humans kind of came, came along and ruined everything for them? Well, yeah, indeed, if we did ruin it, that's even controversial. I think modern humans were involved, but not everyone necessarily thinks so. So I think they were a, a successful group in terms of longevity. They evolved in Europe and Asia for hundreds of thousands of years. At times, I think they had large numbers. At other times, near the end of their time, so in the last 20,000 years, the genome data suggests that Neanderthals were really quite low in number. They were even being forced into a fair level of inbreeding within their groups, which is obviously not not good for the health of the genome overall. So it's not, it's not a done deal that you know, it was definitely modern humans that did for them at all? Well, I think it's a combination. So I think that, of course, they were already suffering in terms of their numbers and their genetic diversity by about 50,000 years ago. Then modern humans come into their areas, they're going to want to hunt the same animals, collect the same plant resources, wanting to live in the best areas. I think there was economic competition between the groups. And for whatever reason, modern humans eventually won out. But Neanderthals, OK, they physically disappeared maybe by 39,000 years ago, but, of course, they did not completely disappear since their DNA lives on in us. And it's believed that in total in modern humans, if we look at all the DNA in modern humans that came from Neanderthals, you can reconstruct about 20% of a Neanderthal genome just from the bits of it left in modern humans today. 
I kind of liked what Professor Chris said about uh, the fact that you know we look at Neanderthals and go, well, they were unsuccessful, that they, they, they've died out, but actually they're present in our genome. Yeah, exactly. It's a really interesting thing, which takes us right back to the beginning of what we're talking about, really, because you know Richard Dawkins' famous thing is the selfish gene, and you know we always think about survival as being us as an organism or somebody who looks like me. But actually, you know, in evolutionary terms, you can take it right back down to the genetics and say all that's going on is these genes are vying for survival and using our bodies as a means to transport themselves down the generations. So here's a good thought experiment for you. If we took an island, a decent-sized island, decent number of different habitats, and put on essentially all of the, the animals that would be there except us, what happens? One of the primates will move into that niche. If there's, a, if there's a niche available, I guess that will happen. But then what you'll need as well is environmental change to really accelerate you know, the creation of a new species. Mm. So eventually, down the line, I think you could argue that something like us would emerge. Because I mean, there's this idea in evolution, convergent evolution, in that it, you can take lots and lots of different paths through the genetics of the whole thing, but you will move towards certain aspects, one of which is intelligence, you know, how, how we define intelligence anyway. And the ability to manipulate your environment is another one. And, and so I think you would end up with something like us um, if you ran the tape all over again, as long as you could keep you know, the humans out. Yeah, and that's, sure... that's probably the trickiest bit. <laughs> it probably is the trickiest bit. Somebody will move in there at some point. But, you know, we're talking millions of years. You know, modern mm. humans have only been around for a couple of hundred thousand years. Not very long at all. You know, we, we diverged from the, the chimps and the gorillas, you know, over five million years ago. So it's really hard to imagine the timescales involved in this kind of thing. But if you did leave it for millions and millions of years, it is possible and, in fact, likely that a another species would develop a level of intelligence that was similar to ours. Yeah, I think um, so. I like that. I want to finish it on that. <laughs> <laughs> but we can't. We have to go over our questions. So the first one was, how did we end up on top? And the answer is basically our brain. Yeah, the size of yeah. our brain enabled us to do things like cooking, the fact that we were wandering around on two feet, the fact that we could have big social groups. Yeah. Question two, could the apes take over in the end? Not really. Not really, unless we wipe ourselves out. If we wipe ourselves yeah. out, then we leave. Then we leave it open. But I don't think they're ever going to. There's not going to be a point where we're getting subjugated by apes. No, there isn't. Really, isn't. Sorry, guys. And uh, if you're listening out there, <laughs> uh, and the if third, you are listening, I'm worried. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to modify my answer slightly. <laughs> and maybe the only thing they listen to is science. But they can't text in, of course. No, they can't. Dolphins could. They'd use their. Uh, beaks um, <laughs> uh, and question three could it all have ended differently it sort of sounds like not really no I'd say not I think you know we were on this path you, know, you could argue that it could have been one of the other species of humans but it seems like we had the advantages and therefore we were going to win Yes, amusing. A man acting like an ape. There is very little difference. Genetically, it's what, 2%, something like that. When I tell people that we have the same number of hairs per square inch as great apes, they go, no, that's impossible. Or that we have the same blood types. Oh, come on. You know, that's not right. But it's all true.
time. Oh. All the time. You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you! God damn you all Science Sesh is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. The researcher was Cormac McAuliffe, and this episode featured Professor Robin Dunbar, Professor Steve Jones, Dr. Susanna Schultz, Professor Chris Stringer, and Laura Keogh. Special thanks goes to the Natural History Museum. The executive producers were Ellie DiMartino and Harry Watson. Oh dear, nailed it.